I V M. Was sitting in a damp hut made of mud and thatch. A solitary lamp flickers in the corner. An old man lies on the bed, drenched in sweat, feverish, groaning. He is obviously in terrible pain. A chill wind blows in through a door made of woven reeds. It brings with it the sound of a commotion. A calm, authoritative voice cuts through them all, and a shadow falls across the doorway. The owner of the voice gently pushes the door open and walks up to the bedside. As he moves, the shadows cast by the pitiful light of the lamp dance harshly across his face. But we recognize that visage with its shining almond-shaped eyes. Siddhartha Gautama, the ascetic known as Buddha and Shakyamuni, the chief sun turned teacher and leader of thousands, looks old and exhausted. But he still retains the calm self-confidence and awesome personal dignity that has drawn so many to him over the years. His face softens as he watches the figure in the bed, who has stopped groaning and turned around with a gasp of surprise. He tries to get up and bow, but Gotama raises an arm. Enough, Vakkali. Do not stir from your bed. I will come to you. He strides forward and sits next to him. I hope you are getting better, kinsman. I hope your pain is subsiding. I am not. Venerable sir, the pain worsens every day. I hope you aren't troubled by remorse and regret. They they eat away at me constantly, venerable sir. But Vakkali, you have lived your life with exemplary virtue. <laughs> Perhaps I have, venerable sir. Then what are you remorseful for? For a long time, I have wanted only to see you, the Blessed One. But I have not been fit enough to do so. Enough, Vakkali. Why do you want to see this foul body? One who sees the Dhamma sees me. Is any form in this world permanent? Vakkali is staring at the Buddha like he's the most beautiful thing he has ever seen, as though he has a god come to earth. He replies without an ounce of conviction. No, venerable sir. Vakkali, any kind of form whatsoever, any kind of feeling, any kind of perception, any kind of mental formation, any kind of consciousness. Nothing is permanent in this world. These five aggregates of which we are composed, they induce suffering. They tie us to this world. Let go of them. Experience revulsion toward them. 
and let yourself grow dispassionate that is how your mind will be liberated tell yourself this is not mine this i am not this is not my self neso hum asmi vakli is nodding but it's not clear whether a word of what buddha is saying has registered neso hum asmi neso hum asmi he repeats as you repeated hundreds of times over his years of training as a shakya putta samanna an ascetic who is the son of the shakya but the only thing that seems to have brought him peace tonight is looking at the face of the man he so obviously idolizes he leans back feebly mouthing the words and closes his eyes he is evidently still in agonizing pain but he tries not to show it rest akali i will see you very soon the buddha leaves his back straight his shoulders squared confidently he seems temporarily like a man much younger than his 70 years almost as soon as he steps out though he slouches with exhaustion another monk runs up to him he looks about 50 or so his head shaven but he is still charming to look at and this must be the buddha's paternal cousin ananda his face as round and joyful as his name behind him is another monk handsome and dark with beautiful black eyes roughly around the same age this is devadatta buddha's cousin and brother-in-law ananda devadatta vakkali is dying i don't think he will last the night shall we return to vulture peak blessed one yes i will return to vakkali after the morning lessons for the monks ananda walk with me devadatta take the other bhikkhus and hurry ahead we will see you at vulture peak the dark monk speaks blessed one with all due respect you must not indulge vakkali so it sets a bad precedent among the monks that you take such an interest in their lives and it undermines your teaching have some kindness devadatta i will not debate this further tonight leave me now leaning on ananda a stick in one hand buddha carefully walks back to where the rest of his followers await it is dark and ominous night and frigid winds blow through the trees above him rustling branches obscure the stars and strange noises echo in the forest birds and bats flutter above leaves whisper like the voices of yakshas gradually the landscape changes the forest opens up into farmland rolling hills rest peacefully under the stars with lights shining on them 
These are the walls of Rajagaha, the capital of the kingdom of Magadha and a rising power in the Gangetic plains. Buddha and Ananda turn off into a path leading into a bamboo grove full of snoring monks. But a few, including Devadatta, are still awake and watch with sharp eyes as Buddha and Ananda walk past. Buddha looks at them strangely and keeps walking up a winding path to a rocky hill. If you look at it just right, it resembles a vulture with its wings folded. Do you recognize it? This is Vulture Peak, the place that the Chinese monk Fasian would walk thousands of miles to reach nearly 800 years later, a journey that we followed in Season 2, Episode 5 of Echoes. On its peak, this man whom the Buddha could hardly have imagined from a society that was totally inconceivable to him, speaking a language alien to anything the Buddha had known, would come and collapse in tears at the thought of his connection to this enlightened Shakyamuni. But today, Vulture Peak is silent, resounding with the chirping of insects, totally unaware of the unfolding of history around it. At length, the Shakya princes turned monks arrive at a cave on the hill, damp and cool, smelling of fragrant blossoms and offerings. Inside is an unassuming bed, little more than a blanket, despite all the wealth and power that the Buddha's followers command. He stretches out with a soft groan and dismisses Ananda with a nod. The younger monk steps outside and lies down on a blanket. Within seconds, Ananda is snoring. Greetings, travelers. What manner of beings have come to receive my instruction tonight? Are you Devas, Devaputtas, Nagas, Yakkas, Supannas, or Gandhabas? Or are you agents of Mara? The evil one. The tempter. You are tired, Master Gautama. Thank you for receiving us. We are none of these. We are people, just as you are. (laughs) Master Gautama. It has been a long time since anyone called me that. Wherever I go today, it is. Blessed one, this. Venerable sir, that. I hope you haven't come to ask me for a miracle, young man. A blessing for love and family, perhaps. Or an easy childbirth or a resurrection. I have heard enough. Enough of those. No, Master Gautama. We only wish to talk to you. We want to ask you about your teachings and your decisions. In our time, you are worshipped as a god. You are all but forgotten in the land of your birth, reduced to the status of an incarnation of a god you rejected. Scripture is written about you by those who have never met you and have flourished across our world for centuries. Millions chant your name and beg your blessings. Violence and murder is committed under your banner. But we want to speak to you as you are now, as a person. Buddha's face is still. I thought he would be more agitated than he is. I am not surprised to hear that. I will answer your questions, traveller. But I will ask you something in return when we are done. 
Of course, Master Gautama. Let's begin then. We heard what you told Vakali. The five aggregates comprise suffering. What does that mean? In our world, we're familiar enough with your four noble truths that life is suffering, that desire is the root of suffering, that the extinguishing of desire is the end of suffering, and that the noble eightfold path that you preached is the means to extinguish desire. But what are these five aggregates? What do they have to do with your teaching? Buddha begins to answer. It seems that all the years have fallen away from him as he returns to doing what he loves most, teaching. It is very simple. Our bodies are made up of five masses or aggregates. The first is form, your shape, your physical presence, made up of earth, air, wind and fire. The form arises through nutriment. Without nutriment, it ends. The second aggregate is feeling. Feeling is born from the interaction of the senses with the world. The eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind. When this interaction increases, feelings grow. When the interaction ceases, feeling ceases. The third aggregate is perception. Perception of forms, sounds, odors, tastes, tactile objects and the perception of mental phenomena. This too arises and ceases with contact and interaction. The fourth aggregate is mental formations. These are of the same classes as perception and they too arise and cease with contact. And finally, consciousness. Now there are six types of consciousness. The consciousness of eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind. Every one of these aggregates, young traveller, gives pleasure and joy when they are indulged. But because they are all impermanent, they cannot be made to conform to our desire for endless pleasure. They can never fulfil your hopes of perfect joy and security because they don't last. And thus, each of the five aggregates conceals a danger. You think you are in control of them, but they are perpetually devouring you. You identify with your form, feelings, perceptions, mental formations and consciousness. It is folly to think that you are them, that they are yourself and that that self is the same as some imaginary eternal, unchanging, universal self, tattvam asi, as the Brahmins say. It is to be like a man who employs as his servant a vicious murderer out to take his life. Hmm. In our world, Master Gautama, much has been done to try and understand why the mind and the consciousness work the way they do. I don't have the expertise or the skill to explain them to you, but I can see why a model of human behavior such as yours can be revolutionary, especially given how much more accessible it is, how much more applicable to the lives of its subjects than the metaphysics of the Upanishads. We know today how humans have evolved. We understand how our bodies work, how the universe works. So can these same ideas really work for us? I turn to you. 
First, you need to understand how do we cling to the five aggregates. There are two ways. One grasps the aggregates with desire and lust and assumes possession of them. You might enjoy the taste of good food, marvel in the splendor of imagination, revel in your sexual exploits. Or one might identify with them, taking them as the basis for views of your own self. I am so beautiful. I am so brave. I am so desirable. I am this body of mine. I am my senses. I am my consciousness. These identity views are the leash that keep you bound to the cycle of rebirth, revolving in circles like a dog going around a post that it is tied to. I turn to you and say, I have my doubts over this cycle of rebirth. And what are we if we are not the meat bags that have evolved over millions of years to define the way that we interact with the physical world around us? But Buddha continues. As you meditate upon these bonds, you will lose your attachment to the aggregates in four stages. At the first, Sotapanna, the entry into the stream. Your dhamma eye opens and you catch a glimpse of reality and the falsity of self-belief. You lose your attachment to rites and rituals. But sensual desire and ill will are too deeply ingrained within humans. They are only weakened when you reach the second stage, when you become a once-returner. Such a person will attain to Nibbana the final extinguishing, after at most one further human rebirth. At the third stage, you become a non-returner. You lose all interest in sensual desire and ill will. But at the same time, you retain some sense of yourself, just as clothes after being washed clean retain the smell of soap. Finally, when this too is destroyed, you attain perfect knowledge of the world. You attain the final Nibbana and will no longer return to this world. You will become an Arahant like so many of my senior most disciples have. I turn to you again. This sounds like quite a nice multi-level marketing scam, no? Listen to the Buddha once and get a Dhamma eye for free. Donate to the Sangha and get released from the cycle of rebirth. But I won't say that out loud, of course. Let's return. Now, Master Gautama, if we are not any of the five aggregates, then what is it that binds us to the cycle of rebirth? What is bound by the aggregates? What is reborn once, twice, never? There is no soul that is permanent and unchanging according to you. So if the aggregates that comprise us are impermanent, then how can we cling to them permanently over the course of many rebirths? 
<laughs> a man was shot by a poisoned arrow once. When taken to receive medical attention, he asked the doctor, "Who shot the arrow? Who were their parents? What color was their skin?" Rather than asking the doctor to remove the arrow and the poison, and so you, young traveller, ask questions that do not matter. Do not dwell too closely on these, as they won't help you attain freedom and release. What matters is that the Dhamma and the truths I teach can release you from suffering, as they have released me and so many others. Very well, Master Gautama. Again, I see why your formula, your diagnosis, your prescriptions can be so popular in these times. But there are other things that I wish to ask you, and these are not related to your teaching so much as they are related to your actions. Ask me, and you will receive answers, Master Gautama. If all that matters is release from the bonds that tie us to this world, then why do you care so deeply about organizing an institution such as this sangha of yours? Why do you not reject the existence of gods totally? And why are you so closely tied to millionaires such as Sudatta, Anath, Pindaka, and Vishakha? Why are your relationships with kings so cordial? He smiles. His teeth are yellower than I thought they would be. I could tell you that the god Mahabrahma himself appeared to me when I received my enlightenment, and asked me to preach to the world. <laughs> But I have a feeling. You won't accept that as a reason. So, simply put, young man, I believe in the Dhamma. I believe in teaching it well. I genuinely believe that what I teach is the truth of reality, and that I can make the world a better place by doing it. So, Master Gautama, do you really believe that the world is divided into ten realms, as your disciples claim? The hells, the animal realm, the realm of ghosts, the realms of humans, and above them the realms of devas and the realms of brahmas and the formless realm. Do you genuinely believe that good and bad karma determine rebirths in these realms when you will not even reveal what it is that is reborn or how and who decides how karma is accumulated? Buddha smiles and says nothing for a while. In my own lifetime. People call me Bhagavato Buddha. People call me the Blessed One. People believe in their gods and their ghosts, young traveller. Let them. What matters is that the Dhamma survives, and that the Dhamma changes their lives. The Dhamma is paramount. Is that why the Sangha exists? Yes. and that is why i have brought to me so many ambitious and capable men shariputta moggalana mahakassappa and of course my cousin devadatta that is why i have instituted rules such as the uposatha days of observance requiring all monks in an area to gather recite the monastic rules and confess their wrongdoings That is why I have created rules and regulations and resolutions for the monastic community to carry out. That is why there are offices for accepting, guarding, and distributing robe material. Why I have ensured that there are set methods for dyeing the robes, 
and set out regulations as to what monks can wear and what kind of medicines they can take, what kind of shoes and sandals they can wear, everything. I am not perfect and many of these things I have learned from others. But there is only one goal. The Dhamma must survive. It is greater than I. It is greater than any of us. And what if your lay followers, Master Gautama, what role do they play in your grand vision? They are crucial. The Sangha cannot survive without them. And without the Sangha, the Dhamma cannot survive. Is that why you've taken so much care to befriend millionaires? Is that why you once told the rich man Sudatta that arms given to the Sangha are meritorious, but more meritorious is to build monasteries? Is that why you encouraged him to buy land from Prince Jeta of Kosala, the Jetavana Chavati that our farmer friend mentioned in the last episode? Is that why you called him Anatha Pindika, feeder of the helpless, and later claimed that he had been reborn as a god and had visited you late at night to learn from and praise you, just as you claimed the gods Venu and Shiva, Vishnu and Shiva, supposedly did? Again, Buddha smiles. Did I really claim all that? Or is it what my disciples will claim after I am gone? Indeed, how clever of them. I have heard of these Vishnu and Shiva here and there. Not as frequently as Brahma, but I suppose they will be considered great gods in the centuries to come. Buddha has evidently not heard the first two seasons of Echoes of India, a history podcast. And what of kings, Master Gautama? Why is it that you are so friendly with the men who have caused so much death and destruction in your world? So often you've been visited at the Jetavana at Shavati by King Pasenadi of Koshala. You've spoken to him about everything from pleasures to word renunciation. You've interacted much with King Bimbisaro of Magadha, the most ambitious man in the Gangetic Plains. Does association with violence and power not undermine your dhamma? On the contrary, young man, when I was living among the Koshalans in a small hut in the Himalayas, I once asked myself, is it possible to exercise rulership righteously without killing and instigating others to kill? Without confiscating and instigating others to confiscate? Without sorrowing and causing others to sorrow? I dearly wish that the Dhamma could be established purely through justice and righteousness. But is it not better for the Dhamma to moderate the violence of the king than to let it continue untrammeled by any morality? As I once told King Pasenadi of Kosala, the killer begets a killer, one who conquers a conqueror, the abuser begets abuse, the reviler one who reviles. Thus, by the unfolding of Kamma, the plunderer is plundered. I have seen war and violence that you will not believe. I have seen the consequences that attachment to the five aggregates wreak on individuals. Misers consumed by greed, addicts wasting away to drugs, rape, Murder. I have personally convinced serial killers like the terrible Angulimala 
to give up their ways and beg alms from the people that they hurt i have spent decades upon decades ceaselessly teaching listening to everyone from the richest to the poorest i have gone hungry for days begging for my own food i barely sleep because of all the teaching i must do all the things i must clarify all the arrangements i must make to ensure that the dhamma survives before my inevitable death who are you to judge me or anyone from our time i am no one master gautama i am nothing ne so ha mas me after all <laughs> very well so it is now time for my question young traveler tell me did the dhamma do good after my end i look at you you see in my eyes the rise and fall of empires the wars of the indo greeks the shakas the kushanas the guptas the vakatakas you see the destruction of great cities and the slaughter and enslavement of their people the hatred that grows in families the ambition and greed that has ruined countless lives you see the competition and acrimony that has erupted between the many sects of buddhism and those of the jains vaishnavas shaivas and shaktis you see the enormous temples that were built to buddha the manipulators and liars that made their fortunes on the people who gathered around his remains enshrined in stupas across the world you see the genocide of minorities across asia the rape and murder the orphaned and brutalized children many in buddha's name but you also see something else universities where hundreds of thousands gathered across innumerable generations to learn and create knowledge the sorrow and joy and love of families that sent their children to become parts of monasteries so they could help people and gain merit the peace and silence and refuge that millions have found in worshiping this man a viral video of a monk in thailand reading the sutras peacefully as kittens climb all over him the love that brings children to this world that warms the hearts of families new and old that binds together the endless chain of generations of which you and i are just a fleeting part the infinite daily acts of kindness and humanity and generosity the adventures and connections and friendships and discoveries between so many alien peoples that the buddha's dhamma helped create over so many centuries and then you see me smile and turn back to this man a tear in my eye it did master gotama lord buddha shakyamuni buddha smiles and says nothing momentarily the weight of decades fades from his lined face you are not what i imagined buddha i have never even imagined you and the world you inhabit aniruddha may you and your companion farewell remember if you will that nothing is permanent not your sorrows nor the lives of tyrants 
The first shy rays of pink sunlight are appearing at the lips of the cave. Dawn is here. There's a commotion outside. A few young monks have come running up Vulture Peak, evidently in great agitation. We can hear Ananda calming them down as Buddha rises from his mat and walks outside, squinting in the light of the early morning. Blessed one, Vakali is dead. He asked these monks to take him to the black rock on the Isigali slope. There he stabbed himself and bled to death. Buddha's face reveals nothing. Do you see, Bhikkhus, that cloud of smoke, that swirl of darkness in the distance? Yes, blessed one. That, Bhikkhus, is Mara, the evil one, searching for the consciousness of our clansman, Vakkali. But Bhikkhus, His consciousness has been unestablished. Our clansman Vakkali has achieved his final Nibbana. The monks seem pleased and relieved with the answer. Oh, what a delight, blessed one! The words that you shared with him last night must have given him the final knowledge he needed to achieve release from this world. Buddha nods, his expression grave, and the other monks head down the hill to share the news with the rest of the community. He prepares to head down the slope himself, but he turns to look at us one last time because he knows that we witnessed what really happened the previous night. But he also knows that his followers will only remember what he has told them when he is gone. His expression is unreadable, his eyes like two swirling oceans, full of conviction, full of life, full of exhaustion, and perhaps even a twinge of sorrow. But there is nothing to see in the cave, for you and I have returned to our world. The old man squares his shoulders and walks down to his world, watching the morning mists, the blossoming flowers, and the awakening birds, in silence. I need your help to research and bring to life the vast complex history of South Asia with irreverence and empathy. Head over to buymeacoffee.com slash akanisetti that's A-K-A-N-I-C-T-T-I or click the link in the description to support me in this labor of love. I know you'll do it because you're awesome. For the price of a cup of coffee, you can help me create some of the most critical and accessible Indian history content on the web for our generation and all who come after. Why don't you help out IVM Podcasts as well? Check out Echoes of India, Yudha and other interesting shows on the IVM Podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts.